following months of preparation, untold expense, and just a little stress. The big day, the wedding day, has arrived. Guests are in situ. The groom lies in wait. And finally, though fashionably late, the bride arrives at the church. The doors open wide. The expectation rises. And the bride, beautifully dressed, begins to march down the aisle. And it's all going so well until the music strikes up. But it is not the celebratory tune they were expecting. And instead, a dirge begins. Well, this wasn't in the script. But the bride continues regardless until she notices another oddity. Because as she scans the guests, she notices something about their attire. The dress code seems to be black suits, black ties, black dresses. And then just to add the icing to her already ruined wedding cake, she looks a little closer and she notices that the guests are not just a little tearful, few tears of joy, they are weeping. They are bawling their eyes out in the pews. Now, if you're planning for your wedding at this moment in time, please don't have nightmares. Such weddings are rare. And yet, would you not agree... This would be a most strange scenario for a wedding. Because the appropriate emotion at a wedding occasion is not gloom or despondency or despair, but joy. So much so that when we describe a successful wedding, we say the couple were so happy. The guests enjoyed the occasion. Because weddings are for joy, not gloom. And so as we continue our studies in Luke's Gospel, this series that we've entitled Good News of Great Joy for All People, it's interesting to note that on one occasion, Jesus likened his presence on earth to a wedding. And he likened himself to a bridegroom. Interestingly, in those days, it was not the bride who walked the aisle, but the bridegroom. And he said to all who would listen, here comes the bridegroom. I've arrived. But he also adds a strange fact. That there are guests who are fasting instead of feasting. Who are sobbing instead of celebrating. And this is a tragedy. It may also be a tragedy in your life this evening that despite the coming of Jesus into our world, dare I say even into our lives, if you're a Christian this evening, there is little joy. There is little feasting. 
Jesus has much to say to you this evening if that's your situation. And I invite you to turn with me to what he said about this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. So it would help to have a Bible open in front of you. It's page 1033 in the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. They said to him, that is the Pharisees, the teachers of the time, said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is better. Amen. Over five years ago now, Nikki and I were making uh, preparations and plans for our wedding day. And we received during that period manifold advice. Seems as if everybody had some idea of what we should do and what we maybe shouldn't do. And I have to be honest, I can hardly remember any of the advice I was given. But one bit of advice does stick in my brain because it was very helpful on our wedding day. A couple of people simply said to us, Colin, Nikki, whatever you do, Whatever else happens, whatever goes wrong, enjoy yourself. Just enjoy yourself. Because a wedding day is a day for celebration. That's what it's about. And Jesus, therefore, as he likens his coming to earth like a wedding, and his presence to a bridegroom, says this very thing. It should be a time of celebration. This should be our first response to Jesus. And this explains this shift that he discusses from fasting to feasting. Uh, The context here is a growing opposition to the ministry of Jesus. While in the early part of Luke's gospel, Jesus has often received popular acclaim, there is also this other stream, this growing body of negative opinion toward Jesus. Uh, This begins, as it often does, in a discreet fashion. As the Pharisees, uh, not overtly, but in the confines of their own heads, think sensuous thoughts about Jesus. After he heals, we saw it last week, the leper. 
And then as we move forward in the narrative, the opposition begins to escalate. It now becomes vocal. Although it is indirect. They don't go to Jesus face to face, but they approach his disciples and they ask in chapter 5, verse 30, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then it escalates again as we move forward to chapter 5, verse 33. The opposition moves up another notch and it comes in a direct manner to Jesus' face. They said to him, And here was their point. John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Essentially, their view, their contention was that during this period, it really was no time to be celebrating. It's a time to fast, Jesus, is it not? After all, and they marshal their evidence now, John's disciples often fast and pray. These are the disciples, the followers of John the Baptist. And moreover, the uh, Pharisees' disciples likewise often fast and pray. In other words, all the committed religious folks that there are, are fasting. Everyone else is doing it. Why aren't your disciples? It's no surprise that this comes from the Pharisees who in particular were fastidious fasters, who moved far beyond the prescriptions of the law, which stipulated that only twice a year did you need to fast. But the Pharisees, they fasted twice every week. Just imagine the kind of folks that they were. The law says we need to fast twice a year. We'll do it twice a week. Every Monday, every Thursday, they fasted. And it was very theatrical, Jesus tells us in one of the other Gospels. Uh, When they fasted, they would whiten their faces. They would pour ashes over their heads. They would adorn old tatty clothes. And basically look as grim as possible. And it actually reflected a very common view of fasting in these days. that, That fasting was a kind of mourning. It was a way to grieve over your sin and to show it. It was a means also of longing for the coming Messiah. And yet it had gone too far. Says preacher Steve Cole, they had the idea that you couldn't be spiritual unless you looked miserable. And yet be that as it may, you can see the rub here. John's disciples often fast and pray. And they even agree with the Pharisees on this, and they didn't see eye to eye very much. They fast and pray, they're disciples, yet Jesus' disciples don't fast and pray. What kind of pious man is this Jesus anyway? Whose disciples do not fast and pray, but eat and drink. They attend parties. They seem to be enjoying themselves a little too much. Now, it's not an uncommon idea today, is it? As someone once described a Puritan, probably wrongly, but the worst kind of Puritan, as someone who worries that somewhere, someone might be actually enjoying themselves. You know this sort of thought? That gloominess is next to godliness. 
that happiness and holiness don't mix. This came to my mind this week as I was reflecting on this text. A comment I heard some years ago from a committed church goer. Uh, they, they said that since Jesus is not recorded as smiling anywhere in the Gospels, then maybe we need to be careful about smiling in church. Jesus doesn't want us to be too happy, was the thought. I didn't know what to say to them back then, but I think I would say to them now, Jesus doesn't want us to be too sour, actually. Because Jesus says that grim Christians are not good wedding guests. That when the wedding's on, when the bridegroom's here, it's a time to feast. Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Jesus asks, probably with a smile on his face. I mean, this is just an absurd picture. Just imagine for a moment that you're one of these parents who's paying for a wedding coming up. And uh, you've really laid out on this. There's a beautiful banquet spread and it's three or four courses and the guests seem to be enjoying themselves and someone comes up and gives a little word in your ear. You say there's a table over in the corner and nobody's eating. They're not touching the food. You say, what's the reason? And they say, they're fasting. Uh, they're on a diet. And you think to yourself, with all the compassion you can possibly muster for them, what a miserable bunch. (laughs) They can worry about the diet tomorrow. The wedding is here today. And you see, Jesus, God's bridegroom, had come into the world here and now to establish a new relationship with God's people. And yet some people are down in the mouth. They won't even open their mouths to eat a a bite. And let me suggest that since today we still live in this year of the Lord's favor, in this period, in this day of grace, that feasting should be part and parcel of the Christian life and experience. Even as the Holy Spirit lives within us, even as in that sense Jesus is present with us, We'll get to the qualification in just a moment. But as he is here, it should be a joyful feast, the Christian life. It really should. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There was someone here this morning who became a Christian. And I didn't get a chance to speak to him, but I was watching, you know. And there were, some, there were tears. And I don't think it was tears of misery. I think it was tears of joy. Why? Because that person met Jesus Christ. They had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom, and you've got to be happy about that. So you don't mind me asking you this evening, if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, how is your joy? Is your Christian experience something you could describe as like a feast? Uh, Maybe you say, well, not a lot these days. I couldn't really say that. I'm under an awful lot of pressure at the moment. Uh, I was uh, reading this week the life story of William Wilberforce. You're going to be hearing 
lots more about him in the next few weeks. If you don't know much of him, there's a film being released about his life. And I knew just a little about him, that he was an evangelical Christian, that he lived during the 18th and 19th century. He was uh, a Christian in Parliament. And that he campaigned for over 40 years for the abolition of slavery, which was achieved just before his death. You talk about pressure. This guy lived amidst pressure. However, at his funeral service, a, a jo- Joseph Brown paid this tribute to him. Listen to this. He was a most cheerful Christian. His heart appeared to be always in tune. No gloomy atmosphere of a melancholy moroseness surrounded him. His sun appeared to be always shining. Another said that his presence was fatal to dullness. Isn't that beautiful? Which goes to show that you can be under pressure, but you can be overjoyed at the same time. You can be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, and you can be committed, and you can pervade joy in the Lord. You can fight and feast together. You don't have to choose between those two things. And maybe some of us this evening just need to hear this emphasis, just need to be reminded that this is the predominant image of the Christian life as we live in the presence of Jesus Christ. However, maybe you say, is that only one emphasis in the New Testament? Maybe there's some of us here who need a slightly different kind of challenge. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus goes on to add something in verse 33. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. So let's be clear about this. There's a time of fasting before the coming of Jesus. There's a time of feasting when Jesus comes and he's present physically on earth. And then Jesus says there's going to be some kind of appropriate time for fasting when he is taken from them. Now, some people think that Jesus is speaking here of the period between his death and resurrection. In other words, that this statement only relates to the short two-day window between when Jesus died and when Jesus rose again. And if that's the case, then the idea is that during that time, the disciples are mourning the death of Jesus and they presumably were fasting during that period. And and now that Jesus is raised from the dead, there's no place for fasting, some would argue. I don't think that is the right interpretation. Let me give the most basic reason and then I'll add another one. In the Gospels, we don't find any reference anywhere to the disciples fasting during that two-day period. It's strange that Jesus would promise this and we have nothing, no record of it at all. And therefore, it probably refers, and most people think it refers, to the period after Jesus' death and after Jesus' resurrection and even after his ascension into heaven. In other words, the period in which we now live, you and I today, 
And it's confirmed in Matthew 25, I think, in one of the very few other references to the bridegroom in the New Testament. Where the image there, the story, is in the context of the second coming of Jesus. The bridegroom returning. Now, what are the implications of this? Does this negate everything we've just said? Is feasting now out in the Christian life and experience? Well, no. Feasting is still part and parcel of the Christian life. It's very interesting if you read the very last part of Luke's Gospel. The disciples go with Jesus to the Mount of Ascension and Jesus, before their very eyes, ascends into heaven. This is the very point when he has been taken away from them. And yet what it tells us here, what Luke tells us, is that as they returned to Jerusalem, they were what? Mourning? Rejoicing, says Luke. They were rejoicing even at this point. So, feasting, there's still a place. No less than Paul goes on to command the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always. And yet, while this is a predominant emphasis, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, he is simply saying, there will be a place for fasting. There will be some place for this. And if you read the second volume of Luke's work, the book of Acts, you find that there's this balance between these two things. It is a joyful church. It is a feasting church. And yet you also read about fastings in the book of Acts. Probably has a different feel to the kind of fasting that the Pharisees engaged in. Usually in the book of Acts, when you read about fasting, and you'll need to look it up for yourself, it doesn't seem to be about grieving over sin. We live in the period after Jesus has come and died on the cross for our sins. And usually, it is an aid to prayer. It is something that they use to help them as they came and brought their petitions to God for specific purposes. So, for example, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, The church is worshipping and fasting. And the Lord gives guidance to set apart Paul and Barnabas to missionary service. Or in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas Barnabas are out in their missionary trip. Some people have become Christians. They want to establish elders. But before they do it, they fast and pray. And then they appoint elders. See, it's fasting for a specific Purpose, And it's not for my own personal salvation to curry favor with God. It's for the upbuilding of the church of God. For the salvation of others. Now, a modern day example of this. James Dobson, some of you will know, uh, works for an organization called Focus on the Family. I was very encouraged this week as a father who sometimes struggles with that task that he didn't start out very well as a dad. Uh, In fact, he was working mega long hours for his church. Uh, He was out one time 17 nights on the trot. Hardly saw his children. His children used to cry as he went out the door in the morning. They knew they wouldn't see him to the next day. And his father wrote him a letter. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, Son, the worst assumption in all the world is the assumption that because you are a Christian and you're involved in Christian ministry, your children will become Christians. Just a false, wrong assumption. And 
That turned Dobson around. And he, he prayed for his children's salvation, of course, but he began to really pray. And he found over a period of time that to help him do this, fasting was very useful. And so every Tuesday, over a period of a number of years, he fasted and he prayed specifically for the salvation of his children. That's the kind of fasting that the book of Acts models. As John Wesley, who once remarked, is not the neglect of fasting one general occasion for deadness among Christians? So I commend this to you. While the predominant image in the Christian life is the feast. So this is the first response to Jesus. But secondly, and a little more briefly, Jesus also speaks about transition. Uh, In particular, a transition from the old to the new. Uh, We all know for any new marriage to work, there has to be a measure of transition. Uh, Transitions for the couple's family as each leaves home uh, from the oversight of their parents. Transitions too for the couple as uh, they move from singleness to union to collective decision making and so on. And indeed, if, if our whole approach to life does not alter, if we do not make the transition, problems begin to happen in marriage. And so Jesus says in the same way, if I am going to be your bridegroom, if I am going to begin a personal relationship with you, transitions will need to be made. And he illustrates this by using two parables. The first one is the old and the new garment. He said, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Why, this is very obvious. Try sewing a new piece of cloth uh, onto an old garment of clothing and see what will happen. As you put the patch through the wash, uh, the new patch will shrink and soon it will tear off the old garment. And you see, Jesus came into the world with something new, something utterly new. Of course, Jesus, in a sense, relates to Judaism, to the Old Testament. He has prophesied in the Old Testament. There is some measure of continuity. But he really is something radically different and fresh. And he is saying to these Pharisees, that their old approach, that their old traditions, that their old ways of looking for God and serving Him need to change. They don't just need a little patch of Jesus and His gospel, a little smidgen now and again. They need some new clothes. You know, in these programs uh, where they make over people's wardrobe and uh, they bring out these individuals with really hideous dress sense. And he promised to transform them. Well, one thing I've never seen them do is say, you know, that clothing, I could work with that. They don't work with the old clothes. They say, let's go out. Let's buy a new wardrobe. Something totally new, totally fresh. It's not a little bit of adaptation that's needed here. And you see, in the same way, our patchwork religion really won't cut it. There needs to be a total transition from our seeking our own righteousness before God. 
Morals which are really filthy rags in God's sight. And then he gives this other image just to back it up. The old and the new wineskins. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. In these days, the skins of animals were used as containers for liquids. And they were ideal for this. They were relatively strong, but they were also pretty elastic. But when the wineskin had been used for some time, it began to lose its elasticity. It became rigid and easy to tear. And you might have got away with it. You know, if you had put some old wine in it, you might have got away with it. But if you poured new wine into the old wineskins, trouble was brewing. Literally. Because the still fermenting and expanding wine would damage the fragile skins. Ruining your wineskin. Ruining your precious wine. And you see, the lesson is the same as the garments. Don't try to mix the old with the new. Embrace the new. Don't expect the gospel of Jesus, of grace, to simply fit within the confines of your traditions. Or even within the bounds of the Old Testament approach. It was a great approach when it started, but latterly it's been getting old and getting worn. And you know, I think the lesson today is that legalism must go. Legalism, which is epidemic in our culture. Not just among religious people, but among the common people on the street. I don't know if you find this, but it seems to me that this is one of the big stumbling blocks for unbelievers in coming to faith. They have this approach to God that if there is a God, we somehow have to be moral and live to a certain standard and He will accept us. It's the old wineskin approach. And maybe it's a problem that you have too. Do you reject the gospel in all its potent force, in its radical grace? I remember uh, some years ago, there was a gentleman who hosted us. I was up in Inverness and we went on the Sunday to a particular church. And there was a preacher that day and he preached the gospel pretty well, pretty clearly. And at the end of the service, it was very evident that this man who I'd went with was pretty displeased. And so I plucked up the courage to ask him, I said, uh, what did you think of the service? And he said, uh, he preached about the cross and it wasn't even Easter. And even in my immaturity, I thought something's not right here. (laughs) Something is wrong when you restrict the grace of God and the cross of Jesus and this new and living way to Easter Day, Easter Sunday. And you see, I think this is the explanation for the ironic comment that comes at the end in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. This is the individual who refuses to embrace the new wine of the gospel and the way of grace. Who says, I'll stick to my morals, I'll stick to my guns, I'll stick to my way of looking at the world. 
Jesus, it's thanks, but no thanks. And they're not even willing to taste the new wine. Like someone who has a particular brand of wine, an old wine that they love, and they're just not willing to try anything new. The new batch on the market. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe that's true of you. Maybe you, like the man that I described, are a little sour to life and a little sour to this message. And yet, the gospel is the very thing that can bring you joy. And you know, believers, this is our job for eternity. We need to get good at this. Because we began the service by speaking about a wedding feast. Here comes the bridegroom. That was the cry of Jesus on his first coming to earth. But you know, there will be an even greater celebration at his second coming. There will be a wedding in the future. It's recorded in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. It's even got a name. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 5. Here's what what the picture of this is. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. Notice that. And be glad. Notice that. And give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Notice, to a garment is given to the bride. And the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There are many weddings that you will be invited to in your life. There are some that you will not be invited to. Maybe you'll be a little upset. Why didn't I get my invitation? But you know the most important invite you could ever receive is the one that you are getting right here tonight. To the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know when you get a wedding invitation it usually has a little bit on the bottom that says RSVP. Respond very promptly. Is that right? I'll speak to my wife about that afterwards. She's going, to, she's going to fill me in on what that actually means. Sorry. The point is, today, tonight, right now, you have the opportunity to accept this invitation. And none of us, none of us know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week. We may never get another opportunity to accept This invitation. You need to come. Here's what you need to do. You need to come in faith, in simple trust in Jesus and what he's done for you, and in repentance, turning your life around to God to live a new way with his Holy Spirit living within you. And if you're a believer, isn't it a great invitation to have with your name written on it? Let's pray.